I have a one question, true or false exam or quiz for you as we begin the message. You don't need to answer it out loud, but one just to stimulate your thought and get you thinking. Here, here's the question, true or false, only unspiritual people cause disunity in the church. The answer, of course, maybe I shouldn't say of course, is false. It is commonly believed, but inaccurate, that only unspiritual people cause disunity in the church. Only people who don't love the Lord, or only people who don't care about the work of Christ, or only people who aren't really serious about their walk with Christ. We'll see an example of what I'm talking about in the text that we're going to consider together. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, if you are not already there. Philippians chapter 4, and please follow along as I read verses 1 through 3. Paul, writing to his dear friends in Philippi, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. As we saw last week, Paul begins this fourth chapter of Philippians with an exhortation to spiritual stability. His concern and desire for his friends was their spiritual stability, their spiritual steadfastness. He wanted to know with confidence that they were standing fast in the Lord, standing firm in the Lord, standing strong in the Lord. As I'm sure many of you know, this is a predominant theme in Paul's letters. Let me just show you one example because we looked at many of them last week. But back up just one letter to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, We've focused on those verses many times in the past. But I don't want us to stop there and, to, and fail to see the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is expressed in verses 13 and 14. It says, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect or mature or complete man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Here again, Paul expresses his concern and his desire for spiritual stability in the lives of God's people. He says that God's goal, the goal of all this is to grow, to be a perfect, that is a mature man, and that we're no longer tossed to and fro, but st strong and stable and firm. Well, that's basically his plea in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Now let's go back over there to Philippians. 
Last Lord's Day, we considered in great detail Paul's exhortation in verse 1. But there was one word that we didn't really talk about, and that is the word so. Depending on your translation, it may be worded a little differently. But notice verse 1. It says, Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord beloved. Notice that Paul didn't just tell the Philippians to stand fast and leave it at that. In the following verses, he tells them how to stand fast. The word so here in this verse means in this way. So stand fast in the Lord. In other words, stand fast like this. Here's how you can do it. Here's how you ought to do it. Then Paul begins to give principles for helping us stand fast. The first one he mentions is unity. As he exhorts Yodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. You see, partnership with others strengthens our own spiritual lives. Partnership with others strengthens us and helps us stand fast. It's very difficult to stand fast in the Lord on your own. I'm not saying it can't be done, because there may be times in your life where you do have to stand all alone. You don't have Christian friends around in certain environments, but it's very difficult to stand fast in the Lord on your own, but it is especially almost impossible to stand fast if you are at odds with other Christians. God has given us one another to strengthen each other. Surely you know what I'm talking about. We draw strength from one another. That's why the Lord puts us in a body. That's why he puts us in a family. We need each other. We don't live the Christian life solo. That's obvious to most people. I often have people in the church say to me, Brian, who can I link so-and-so up with for encouragement? I know if he or she had a strong Christian friend that his or her own spiritual life would stabilize and really take off. We recognize that kind of dynamic. That's why the New Testament is filled with one another's. The phrase one another is used 58 times in the New Testament, not counting the uses in the Gospels. Now, whenever God says something once, we should really pay attention to it. But when God repeats something 60-some times, then it can't be emphasized enough how important the concept is. And yet, sadly, the church of Jesus Christ has virtually ignored the subject of believers ministering to one another. Instead of seeing every member of the body of Christ having a responsibility to other members of the body, we have this idea that just a few people have that responsibility or that privilege. We've even gone so far as to call a few people the ministers. They are the ministers. And everyone else is supposedly the ministeries. But it's not just our titles that propagate that concept. Our structure or our our form can as well. In our meetings, if we're not careful, we, we can leave very little time for any body life to take place. Very little opportunity for mutual ministry, for interaction. One or a few people do the ministry. In practice, what we have done 
is we have created Protestant popes in our churches. Now, it's hard to know where to place the blame when you look at the big picture. Maybe it's the leadership's fault for not allowing ministry to be carried out by others. Or maybe it's the congregation's fault for giving over all the responsibility of ministry to just one or two people. It's probably a little bit of both. But in any event, it's a situation that is totally contrary to the New Testament teaching of the one another's. We are commanded to love one another, honor one another, accept one another, admonish one another, serve one another, bear with one another, submit to one another, bear one another's burdens, encourage one another. That kind of body life and interaction strengthens us and helps us stand fast in the Lord. But when there is division and disharmony, there is little chance of spiritual stability. That is why when Paul exhorts the Philippians here in verse 1 to stand fast in the Lord, the very first thing he does next is to command Yodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. He says in verse 2, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Can you believe Paul's nerve? He comes right out and names these two women who weren't getting along. And remember, this letter was read out loud. I mean, picture this in your mind. One Lord's Day, the church in Philippi gathers together. Everybody comes together. And an announcement is made at the beginning of the gathering that a letter has arrived from Paul from Rome, and it's going to be read in its entirety during the gathering. There sit Yodi and Syntyche, totally unaware of what's about to happen. They are listening as the reader, whoever it was, makes his way through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, though there were no chapter divisions in the letter at that time. But this person is reading, you know, chapter 3, verse 12, not that I have already attained or already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that. And you can see Yodi and Syntyche sitting there just shaking their heads. They're really with it. And then the reader comes to chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brother, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. Beloved, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Can you imagine the shock in the minds of Yodia and Syntyche? It's sort of like the commercial, you know, you want to get away? You just want out of there. I thought maybe we should try this kind of thing in our Sunday morning services. <laughs> I bet it worked. I mean, they, they either got things straightened out between them or they left the church. But either way, the cancer of division was taken care of for the time being. Besides, there was no other church in town to which they could have gone. There was one church, the church in Philippi. They were trapped. They had no choice but to work it out. This was probably the situation that Paul alluded to elsewhere in this letter. As you read through the letter to the Philippians, you can see, you can pick up on these little hints of disunity scattered throughout the letter. For example, back in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul, when he tells about his prayer for them, he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. Paul's first item on his prayer list 
for the Philippians was for them to love more. Then down in verse 27, he says this, chapter 1, he says, only or regardless of what happens to me, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul wanted the confidence that whether he was present or not, the Philippians would stand fast together in one spirit with one mind working together. Then he opens chapter 2 with an appeal to unity. Notice how he opens chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than or more important than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind, this attitude, be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to delineate the attitude of Christ who was selfless, and who emptied himself of the independent use of his attributes of deity and just submitted to the Father's will and did what the Father wanted and gave himself even to the death of the cross. Then Paul comes right back to this subject, but from a different angle down in verse 14. He says in chapter 2, verse 14, Do all things without complaining and disputing. Do all things without grumbling and arguing. You see, disharmony leads to being critical, complaining, and a negative attitude. So Paul periodically addressed this subject so that the poison would not spread in the body. Let me stop right here and and give you a challenge as I give myself a challenge. Here it is. If you don't consciously choose, if you don't consciously choose that you will not allow a bad attitude or critical spirit to be part of your life, it will be a part of your life. If you don't consciously choose that you will not allow yourself to be sucked into divisiveness and disharmony, you will be sucked into divisiveness and disharmony without realizing. That is why Paul regularly teaches on the subject and warns about this issue. But in chapter 4, he gets very specific when he names Yodia and Syntyche. Let's go back to chapter 4 to look at that specific situation. What do we know about this lack of unity between Yodia and Syntyche? What do we know about it? Well, for one thing, we know this wasn't a division over doctrine. How do we know that? Well, if it were a division over doctrine, Paul would have just said who was right. He would have settled the matter. He would would have set forth the truth, and that would have been it. So the division must have been over matters of opinion or preferences. And that's usually the way it is in the church. Divisions almost always occur over personal opinions and personal preferences concerning things like worship style, musical taste, cultural issues, 
just fill in the blank. And the amazing thing, beloved, is this. Hear this. I need to hear this. You need to hear this. We always think we are right. People can always attach some spiritual reason to their viewpoint to prove that their opinion or their preference is right. Of course, I mention this enough to know, or for you to know, that I regularly hear this about music. But that's not the only area. It's just, it's almost always in areas of preference, taste, that kind of thing. And it's, you know, if it weren't so sad, it really would be comical. Few people are honest enough with themselves or objective enough in the area of taste and preference to admit that their preferences are based on taste. So what they do is, and whatever the issue, they attach a supposed spiritual reason to their viewpoint to justify the the position in their mind. Those are the kinds of things that create division in the church. Personal opinions, personal preferences, personal taste. Or maybe it's something a little more legitimate. Maybe it's a hurt. Maybe someone has been hurt inadvertently by someone else in the body or by the body at large. And rather than the person who's hurt overlooking the offense, they just let it fester and they determined they're going to make somebody pay. Or they're going to make an issue out of it. So rather than doing what Scripture says about forbearing with one another, overlooking offense, they make an issue. And I want to underline the word personal when I say it's about personal opinions, personal preferences, personal taste, personal experiences. It's personal. People who fight for their way are very personal because they are not thinking of others. They completely ignore what Paul said in chapter 2, in verses 3 and 4, where he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. By the way, that, that Greek term there is a fascinating term. If you just track the usage of that term, you know, I think the best way to define that term would be this. Plain politics to get people on your side. Now, does that ever go on in the church? Do people ever play politics to get people on their side? Oh, it happens all the time. Paul says, let nothing be done that way. No politics to get people on your side. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Why did Paul say that? Because personal interests are almost always at the bottom of church disharmony. Even though the personal interests are often veiled in supposed spiritual reasons. See, rarely, think about this, rarely do you hear of a church split over doctrine, truth. It's almost always things like the color of the carpet, the time and length of the services, some sacred cow that has been tampered with, some tradition that has been altered, some decision by a committee or a group of leaders. It's, it, those are the kinds of crazy, silly things that cause divisions. And people have their own personal 
perspective and preference, and boy, they are going to demand that they are right. And it was no doubt something like that that was behind the problem between Yodia and Syntyche. So Paul makes a personal appeal to each one of them to work things out. Now don't let that thought pass too quickly. Notice that Paul appealed to both of them there in verse 2. Both of them may have been at fault, or maybe only one of them was primarily at fault. But Paul appealed to both of them. What that tells me is this. Even if you or I, even if we aren't the one at fault in a division, we should do whatever we can to get things worked out. Look at what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5. Go back to Matthew 5. Verse 23, Jesus said, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Notice our Lord's instruction here. He didn't say that if you have something against someone else, you should go make it right. It is true, according to Matthew 18, that if your brother has sinned against you, you should take the initiative to go to him to try to make things right. But here, Jesus even says that if you know of someone who has something against you, you should seek to make it right. You take the initiative. Don't wait for the other person to come to you. However, there's a little balance to this, because some of you are probably sitting there thinking, oh my, There's this situation, and I've tried every angle, every way possible, and I haven't been able to make it right. Am am I in sin? Am Am I wrong? Well, look at Paul's words in Romans 12. Because he says this same thing, but then he adds another very important component to the command. Romans 12, verse 18. If it is possible... As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. In other words, this is similar to what Jesus said there in Matthew 5. You do everything you can. You know that someone has something against you. You try to go make it right. Do what you can. Really be sincere in your effort. But Paul was a realist. Some people are impossible to get along with, or some people will not reconcile, no matter how much you humble yourself, no matter how much you seek forgiveness, no matter what. So that's why he words this verse the way he does. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, if you do everything you really can do, you can have a clear conscience before God that you have done everything that you could do. That's what Paul was calling for from both Yodia and Syntyche. Now back to Philippians 4. So in verse 2, Paul appealed to both Yodia and Syntyche to take the initiative to work things out, to patch things up. But he also knew that they may not. In fact, he probably realized they would not. 
After all, when you get in the midst of a disagreement, it is very easy for your pride to get control of you so that you refuse to budge. Those of you who are married know what I'm talking about. That's why pride is so deadly to a good marriage. It's often the roadblock that you set up that prevents you from talking things out and working things out. If that was happening in this situation, Paul didn't want to let it go without being resolved. So after he appealed to Yodia and Syntyche, he branched out to call for some outside help. He says in verse 3, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, we have no idea who this true companion was. Numerous suggestions have been made, but nobody really knows. Obviously, whoever it was, he or she knew to whom Paul was referring. So Paul appeals for outside help from a peacemaker. But I want you to notice how Paul describes Yodi and Syntyche in this verse. He refers to them as these women who labored with me. It's very possible that he's referring to the same group of women mentioned in Acts 16. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go back to Acts 16. And you'll remember how this church started. Paul and his companions come to Philippi. Verse 11 says, Therefore, Sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. From there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out, to the, out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. There was no, we know from this that there was, there was no synagogue in Philippi. You, there was a a minimum number of men required for a synagogue, a Jewish man, and evidently this city didn't have that many Jewish men, so no synagogue. Therefore, they met at a riverside. Paul goes out on the Sabbath when the Jewish people would gather, and he finds this group of women who have a prayer meeting. Verse 14 says, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. So one of these women is singled out here in this verse. Her name is Lydia. But... The other women aren't named. However, it's possible that Yodi and Syntyche were among this group. We can't be sure about that, but Paul does refer to them as these women who labored with me. So they were women who were saved while Paul was in Philippi. Now back to Philippians 4 with that in mind. If these women labored with Paul, as he says here in Philippians 4 then that means that they had been Christians when Paul was in Philippi, and Paul had not been in Philippi for 10 years by the time he wrote this letter. So that means that these women had been Christians for 10 years. And they were Christians who realized the priority of serving the Lord. Paul says, they labored with me in the gospel. Let me say it this way. These were good women. These were women who were involved in serving the Lord with Paul. They weren't, you know, just 
people on the sidelines, spectators. They were older Christians. I don't know their age, but I'm talking about older in the Lord, 10 years old in the Lord. They were older Christians who were involved in ministry, who had a heart for ministry, a heart for service. You know what that tells me? Satan can and will use anybody to create division and disharmony. Spiritual maturity doesn't exempt you from being used by Satan to cause divisions. Spiritual service doesn't exempt you from being used by Satan to cause divisions. Spiritual longevity doesn't exempt you from being used by Satan to cause divisions. That ought to be a serious and sober warning to all of us especially to any of us who would think, well, I won't cause divisions because I'm a mature Christian or I'm a serving Christian or I'm, uh, you, you know, a serious Christian. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Dr. John Walver wrote this, quote, a common faith in Christ and a common desire to serve him do not necessarily adjust personal differences and do not always unite everyone in a course of action. The road to smoothing out these differences is found when Christians achieve the same mind in the Lord. When this is realized, differences in minor details of doctrine and in practical matters can be adjusted. But too often, I hear what he says here, too often human pride, the stubbornness of the flesh, and personal ambition for prominence get in the way. Paul's exhortation emphasizes that Christians who are really yielded to the Lord should be able to resolve their differences. Even though they may not all be of precisely the same opinion, they should be able to find a meeting place in the mind of the Lord. End quote. And he's right. It should work that way. But if you've been around any length of time at all, you know, sadly, it doesn't always work that way. I believe there's a note of pain in Paul's words as he writes these words here in Philippians 4. I mean, think about it from Paul's perspective. These were two of his co-laborers that were fighting. Two of his co-laborers. These were two of his friends. These were two of his spiritual children. Those of you who are parents know how it hurts you when your children fight and don't get along. Well, that's the way Paul felt. It hurt him. So in verse 2, he urged them both to reconcile. And then in verse 3, he even asked someone else to get involved in the reconciliation process. By the way, do you, do you ever do that? If you see an opportunity to be an agent for peace, do you take the initiative to facilitate reconciliation? Or do you just refuse to get involved and say, hmm, I'm going to let them work it out? Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Do you make it a practice of helping make peace or at least trying to help make peace? Or do you let situations go by without saying anything when you may be the one who can be the peacemaker? If you know of a situation where you can be used by the Lord to be a peacemaker, 
then do what you can. Don't ignore the situation. Paul didn't notice. Paul did not instruct Yodi and Syntyche to ask for help because he knew that they probably wouldn't ask for help. People who are fighting, people who are at odds, often don't. Sometimes they do, but often don't want help resolving the conflict. They just want to be right, just want to win. So Paul instructs this true companion to get involved. And realize this. Paul told this person, Paul encouraged this person to get involved even though the two ladies didn't invite him or her to get involved. Think about that one. The very existence of the need is the invitation to get involved. Let me say that again. The very existence of the need is the invitation to get involved. Now, I'm not saying you should be rude, and there are situations where wisdom would, would, uh, would indicate that it's, it's going to be impossible to get involved and do anything. So I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on all of us to say, anytime we're aware of conflict, it's our job to fix it. You can't fix a lot of things. So I'm not saying you should be rude or unwise, but if you know of a situation where you can be used by the Lord to be a peacemaker, then do what you can. Paul evidently didn't think this situation would get resolved without some outside help. So he does what he can by exhorting Yodi and Syntyche, and then he encourages another key person to get involved. I think there's one other way Paul seeks to help this situation. Notice the end of verse 3. <clears throat> He says, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul may have added that statement to try to draw the minds of these two ladies to a vertical perspective, to some kind of heavenly perspective. He reminds them that their names are in the book of life. They are sisters in Christ. They are in the family of God. God graciously gave them forgiveness and eternal life. And his desire for them is to be unified and work out whatever the problem is. It's almost as if, by Paul adding that at the end of verse 3, he's saying this without saying it. Can't you at least maintain unity out of love and thankfulness to God for including you in the book of life. That's the weight of that reference, the weight of that statement. They are citizens of heaven. And the church here on earth is supposed to be a picture of the church in heaven. There are no divisions in heaven. There shouldn't be any on earth. There's perfect unity in heaven there should be perfect unity here on the earth. I believe that's the subtle hint behind Paul's mention of their names in the book of life. It should provide loving motivation to work out their differences. It should provide an eternal perspective to prompt them to work out their differences. By the way, aren't you glad God isn't still writing the Bible? 
How would you like to have your problems written down for everybody to read about and talk about and study? Wouldn't that be something? Okay, this week we're going to study Tom's problems. How would you feel if you're Tom? I'm glad God's not still writing the Bible. But the Holy Spirit recorded this little incident for us to learn from. Disunity has always been a problem, beloved. You know that. I mean, down through the centuries, still is to this day. It's a sad reality, and, and I'm not knocking them. I'm just stating, stating it because it needs to be stated and needs to be understood. It's a huge problem on the mission field of all things. You would think, oh, missionaries who go and they give up living in America and they go to some difficult place to live, they sell out for Christ, they'll really get along. Just ask missionaries. Just ask missionaries whose role it is to try to work with other missionaries and maintain unity. They'll tell you how difficult it is. So this is an issue that needs to be and is regularly addressed in Scripture because it is just a common problem, sadly, in the body of Christ. And if you think it would have been embarrassing for Yodia and Syntyche to have their names read out loud in front of everybody in the church. And that's where some people go with this. I can't believe Paul would do that. I can't believe he would embarrass them like that. How embarrassing to have your names spoken in front of the church. Well, if that's your perspective, just think how embarrassing it is for God when his children don't get along with each other. Do you see how quickly we're horizontal in our thinking instead of vertical? Was it anyone, I include myself in this, was it anyone's first thought when we read this passage? Oh, how embarrassing for God that they couldn't get along. Probably very few, if any, went there first. Instead, oh, how embarrassing for these people. What about God? William Barclay writes this, quote, It is a grim thought that all we know about Yodi and Syntyche is that they were two women who had quarreled. It makes us think. Suppose our life was to be summed up in one sentence. What would that sentence be? Clement goes down to history as the peacemaker. Yodi and Syntyche go down as breakers of peace. Suppose we were go- to go down to history with one thing known about us what would that one thing be? That's a penetrating question, is it not? Let me ask you a few more to ask yourself as we close the message. Ask yourself these questions as, as I ask myself these questions. Am I standing firm for what I want in the church? Am I standing firm in honor of my preferences, my perspectives? Am I standing firm with a couple of my friends to try to get our way? Or am I standing firm in the Lord by maintaining the unity of the Spirit? That's the issue the Spirit of God wants us to face as a result of our exposure to this passage. Not a one of us in this room, not a one of, the, of us in this room is exempt 
from being a Yodia or a Syntyche. All of us have the potential, beloved, if we aren't so very careful. Let's pray as we close. Father, as we contemplate this passage, this situation, we don't know what led to it. We don't know what fostered it or what caused it to fester. We don't know what fed it. In a sense, it's good because it would be easy for us to just dismiss it and say, well, that's not my situation. Instead, you've left it very general so that we would hopefully be contemplative. And think about our tendency to be an Iodia or a Syntyche. To demand our way, to look out only for our own interests, not the interests of others. Father, really, really impress upon us. Impress upon us the fact that not a one of us is exempt from being like this and doing this very kind of thing. So make us extra sensitive in our souls, extra sensitive in our hearts and in our minds and our spirits to anything that we might say or do that would contribute to disunity. May it be as precious to us, unity. May unity be as precious to us as it is to you so that we protect it And we recognize the value of our Lord's words, your son's words, blessed are the peacemakers. Instead of being troublemakers, may we be peacemakers. So grip our hearts with this truth, with this issue, lest we inadvertently become a pawn of Satan to be used to contribute to disunity and disharmony in your church. We pray these things in the matchless, precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.